0: 80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com.
1: Yeah, and, and so I, I remember thinking coming down, um, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I've got this kid on the way, you know, I need to... I need to do something, and I remember talking to someone who gave me really great advice. Said, "You know, you have some pretty interesting experience, and you've lived overseas, and you've got a master's. And, you know, go work at a think tank." And I said, "What's a think tank?" Yeah, sure. Right. Um, and so he explained it to me, and, and I said, "Well, I don't really want to be a research assistant. You know, like I'm in my 30s. You know, he's like, "No, no, no, go be a fellow at a think tank." I said, "Wait, you're they're going to pay me to think and write? That's a thing." <laughs>
0: any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Twenty years ago, the District of Columbia decided they needed to get rid of their stodgy old convention center and build some magnificent shrine on the hill that would attract literally thousands of people to the district almost every day, it seems like. Part of that plan was to build a destination zone around it with hotels, restaurants bars. And in 2005, Marriott won the bid to build one of their flagship marquee hotels right across the street. But one of the challenges with that bid was that there's a beautiful historic old building right on the corner of 9th and Mass. And Marriott agreed to preserve the facade. So if you're standing on the corner and looking at the convention center on your right, this brand new, contemporary, beautifully designed Marriott Marquis. To your left, right in the corner is this building from the early 20th century. Back in 1915, the United Association of Journeymen and Apprentices of the Plumbing and Pipe Fitting Industry of the United States, Canada, and Australia (laughs) built their headquarters right here. Now, we're just going to refer to them as pipe fetters now because I I barely stumbled through that the first time. And if you are standing on that corner at 9th and Mass, looking at this beautiful red brick masonry, gorgeous building from 1915, you wouldn't necessarily know that hiding in plain sight is one of DC's best and most popular whiskey bars. It is the dignitary. They specialize in multiple varieties of bourbon. Think craft cocktails to your liking, and even if that's not your taste, they will take care of you here. If you walk in that front door off of the corner, you might have no idea that this thing is actually one of the hotel bars at the Marriott Marquis. It is so unique. Beautiful brick line. My guests and I are sitting here in overstuffed chairs by a fireplace. Yeah, in fact, joining us here right now is the director of restaurants here at the Marriott Marquis. Nick Criado. Nick, thank you for joining us on 80 Proof Politics.
2: Hey, thank you. I appreciate uh, you guys stopping by.
0: So uh, t- tell us a bit about the Dignitary and how it fits into the Marriott scheme here.
2: So in 2014, the hotel was built, and they built around the uh, this whole beautiful structure. Um, it, b- above us, we have uh, some suites that are here, and uh, it's a great place to stay, and uh, we, uh, we really do uh, love it.
0: Yeah, we happen to be recording this right in the midst of cherry blossom peak yes so i imagine you guys have been swamped
2: it's been it's been very crazy we're just hitting our stride and with uh, cherry blossom with the great turnout we've had in the city it's been it's been great
0: and uh, you imagine you're pulling primarily off of the convention crowd over here
2: absolutely we actually are connected to the convention center so they're right below us about two floors down there's an actual con- connector that takes you directly to the convention center. So when they were built, we were built really closely uh, next uh, around the same time. So it kind of works out.
0: Now, I know I can get some food here at the dignitary, but what if I want to stop in for a drink and stay in the facility? What else do you guys offer?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, lobby Bar is open around 3 o'clock, but we have a breakfast and lunch uh, uh, restaurant called The Anthem. That's open at 6.30 and uh, is uh close around 3 o'clock, but there's always something to eat, always something to drink, and we're, we'll be glad to serve you guys.
0: Well, we really appreciate you hosting us. You guys have been fantastic. And look, like, like I said at the outset, you cannot go wrong at the Dignitary. I hope to see you here someday.
2: Yeah, so do we. Thank you so much, and, uh, yeah, we hope to see you. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thanks.
0: With me at the Dignitary today is a distinguished alumnus of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, Errol Yavike. Errol, welcome to 80 Proof Politics and cheers.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: Great to have you. So, one thing we've not covered on 80 Proof Politics to date is think tanks and how think tanks fit into this overall ecosystem of the federal government. Well, Errol's the perfect guy to tell us about that, so we're going to fix that on this episode. Because Errol is the director of the Project on Fragility and Mobility at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and he's also a senior fellow in their international security program. Yeah, Errol, when people think of think tanks in this town, they tend to think of the big three, Brookings, maybe Heritage, but also CSIS. So tell us what CSIS mission is and how you guys play your role in the policy
1: world here. Yeah, first of all, Bill, thanks for having me. Um, the old fashioned is delicious. I'm glad we went with bourbon. Uh, I would echo your praise of this bar. It's a, it's a really DC establishment. CSIS and and Brookings and some of the others that you mentioned are, I think, a really interesting part of the DC policy ecosystem. CSIS itself was born out of Georgetown University in I believe the 1960s, and I think pretty soon realized that there was a space beyond academia, not quite in government, not quite in academia, that was a really critical space to fill. Now it's not uniquely DC, but it's it's you know I think it's rare other places outside of DC. We have come to to recognize the importance of of these uh, establishments like CSIS. Um, but I'm not sure that those outside the Beltway um, totally understand what it is you do, and I'll include my own family in that. <laughs> um, CSIS, we, we're a foreign policy think tank. We focus on national security. We we define national security really broadly. Um, obviously, I have colleagues that look at tanks and guns and space policy and and other types of stuff like that, but I also have colleagues who look at food security and health security and development and I work for the international security program so a lot of those missile focused colleagues are, are on my broader team I'm the peace and migration guy I look at peace building and, and conflict prevention how do we stop the wars that, that um, those folks over at the Pentagon are, are fighting And on the other flip side of that coin, I look at all things human mobility. So um, if you're moving from Miami to Stockholm to work at Spotify, not really. That's not the type of immigration migration that I look at. But I am interested if you're a low-wage earner, if you're compelled to move irregularly outside of the normal system, and, of course, if you're a refugee.
0: Yeah, my understanding is CSIS started early 60s, like you said, born – of the Cold War, and very much focused on national security, military preparedness. But it seems like you've branched over the years into many of the global challenges that come from conflicts or the prevention of conflicts.
1: Absolutely. And and we have, I think one thing that makes us really interesting and quite frankly a fun place to work is that we have all of these subject matter experts, but then we also have regional experts. I'd argue we have the top one or two Africa program in all of D.C. I'd argue that our Asia program is second to none. Uh, And so you've got people who not only care about the issues that I care about from a functional level, but I can go and talk to my Middle East colleague. I can go talk to my Southeast Asia focused colleague, and, and we can really compare notes. And what's Beauty. What's beautiful about CSIS, I think, one of many things, is that we don't always agree with one another. Mm. There's actually no institutional point of view, uh, other than I think broadly we care about U.S. foreign policy, yeah. um, but I regularly, friendly disagree with, with my colleagues. And I find that to be really invigorating and, and refreshing. Yeah, that's got to
0: not only spur a good debate, but it's got to help populate the work you do, I would think.
1: Absolutely. I, I An example of something I did last year, I, I co-authored with an Air Force, I believe he's a colonel in the Air Force, we have these military fellows, I co-authored something on drones and uh, how drones, essentially the way that they have been historically deployed is, is making the issues that we're trying to solve with drones, it's making them worse. You know, the quintessential example of bombing a, uh, you know, a drone bombing a Somali wedding or something. Well, that's yeah, going to create more bad guys than it's going to get rid of. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I had access to this, you know, really bright, incredible um, co-author. And, and he and I put out something that I think was broadly... Um, not accepted, but you know people quibbled around the edges. But I think it had credibility that maybe it wouldn't otherwise have. Was he active? An active colonel. So all of our military fellows are active, okay. uh, and and as part of their career journeys, they take uh, a year off. They're usually O fours mm-hmm. and above, so lieutenant colonels. If you're in the in the army. And above, and they take a year, and it's part of their career journey. They're they're with CSIS. Yeah.
0: Did he have to go through a vetting
1: process for oh, the I'm article and sure all that? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure he did. Thankfully, I wasn't part of, part <laughs> of that process. You can uh, say whatever you wanted. To. They didn't. Yeah. I, I mean, I I am under no obligation to say one thing or the other. Um, Luckily, even if it did go through that vetting process, there was no change to the content. I mean, we were able to maintain our intellectual independence.
0: Yeah, so you don't have a regional aspect to your work. You're more, maybe not a generalist, but you have your areas of specialty.
1: That's right, I'm a functionalist. Okay, and
0: so I've, I've noticed on your LinkedIn page that some of those specialties are related to climate change, human migration, as you've mentioned, international development, violent extremism and disruptive technology so i want to come back to that one in a sec but how do you go about well let's just call it your daily job of working through policies, publishing articles or reports related to your specialty areas
1: it's a great question I, ultimately if you, if you read about my expertise and, and what a DC thing of you to have found information about me on LinkedIn Um <laughs> if you if you read about my background, you, you kind of have more questions than you have answers. And I think that's mainly because I'm just a curious person who uh, my biggest professional fear in life is being bored. Mm-hmm. And so I have these disparate interests. And in, in what I've realized over time, both in my own time in the field and at a place like CSIS, is that there, there's a lot of connective tissue between these issues. Migration is both a source of fragility and conflict and violence, and a result of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think what's what's really interesting about the the place that I work is that I can explore these different avenues. And the, and your your question about essentially how do you pick topics and how do you figure out what to study is a really good one for me it's a combination of I read a ton and I think anybody that, that works anybody that works in the space that doesn't read a ton and, and not just reading people that I agree with I read a ton and I read not just the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal I'm reading academic journals I'm reading um, more niche publications And one of the things that I try to do is, is there something about my lived and learned experience that just doesn't jive with what I'm reading? Mm. And this happens sometimes in the DC ecosphere. You have people who, we all go to the same meetings. We all, it's relatively the same people and you can create an echo chamber. Absolutely. And during COVID, I saw this as being a huge problem because we were all sitting in our basements on Zoom and none of us were traveling. And, and the travel is really critical because you sort of update your priors, to use an economic term. Yeah. Um, you, you talk to people who are outside of your bubble. And you update the way that you think about the world and the way you analyze problems. And so now that we're all doing that again, the conversations are much more interesting. But if I'm reading a bunch of stuff from different places and there's an angle that I'm not seeing. If I'm reading national security publications and it's all drones are great. Maybe, maybe there's something missing. Yeah. Not that they're not reading that human rights-related report. They, they're probably acknowledging the existence of it. What's missing is the connection, a national security-related argument, perhaps. And so I'm always looking for that, that what's, what's my value add? If it's been written before I don't, and I agree with it and it's holistic, I'll promote it on Twitter, but I'm not going to write it. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Well, with so much happening globally in all of these areas of specialty that you have, what are you working on now?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm a, um, like I said, my, my biggest professional fear is being bored or, or maybe related to that, being useless. And so I'm, I'm always looking for things that are relevant. I'm always looking for interesting people. And I got connected with someone who's really interesting last fall, a guy named Jonathan Tubner who runs an AI firm. And I you know, I'm following J- Chat DPT like the rest yeah. of us, and <clears throat> you know, but I'm not a technical specialist in, in AI. And he started telling me about some of the capabilities of his firm. And I said, well, can we point those capabilities in a way that understands some, some issues that are not readily understandable? And he said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, what if we did something, and he had already been looking into this, so this wasn't just my idea, but we we essentially decided to look at uh, Russia and look at Russian propaganda on their own citizens. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was all sorts of messaging coming out of Moscow that wasn't in English, that wasn't, Meant for you and me, it was meant for Russian citizens. You know, um, this is a just war. You know, all of that stuff. And so, Jonathan and, and Filter Labs AI, his firm, uh, were able to. They have these tech, these these ability to scrape the internet for open source, Telegram, Twitter, whatever is is publicly available in Russia. Their internet looks different than ours, but there's still some some publicly available stuff and so they've got these scrapers that they can point towards all over Russia not just Moscow and they can ask those scrapers to, to to collect certain keywords to collect certain information and what they can do is something called sentiment analysis they can figure out how people are feeling about a particular issue at a particular time
0: based on impressions and
1: based on what they and... themselves are saying okay imagine you and I are having a public back and forth on Twitter and you're like, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this way about a certain issue or, you know, my son got drafted to go to Ukraine and I'm really unhappy about it. Yeah. That's maybe an obvious thing, but... Um, so they can take that. They can take those impressions that people have and they can do analysis of it. And basically what we were able to show was that over time... Russia's propaganda on its own people was becoming less and less effective as those people's lived experiences were coming into contrast with the propaganda that they were receiving. Putin can tell me that everything's great and that we're winning in Ukraine, but then my son dies in Ukraine. What does he die for? How does he die? Well, he was ill-equipped. He was ill-trained. You know, All of these things that just fly in the face... And we particularly looked at places that are, are big minority populations in Russia, Eastern Russia, you know next to Mongolia, for example. A lot of those troops that are being conscripted and sent to Ukraine are from these minority areas. and so we put out a piece in, in Politico that that sort of summarizes some of this this research and again it's not um, it, it's related to this disruptive technologies. Um, disruption can be a good thing sometimes and I think in this way, the, the, the AI monster was maybe deployed for good.
0: <laughs> That's fascinating. I will have to go read that because that sounds not only very interesting, but, man, so timely.
1: Yeah, and it was published right around the, the anniversary. It was part of Politico's uh, anniversary coverage, which we were really grateful to the editor about. <laughs>
2: Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the
0: context of current events.
1: Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast.
0: Speaking of uh, writing from what you know, I came across a piece that you wrote, a very personal piece it seemed like, about the earthquakes in Turkey. What
1: was it about that that resonated with you? Yeah, I don't work for a news outlet. And so I generally stay away from more newsy type topics, even if they're in my space, migration, refugees, or conflict prevention, et cetera. I wrote about Ukraine after it happened because I needed to write about Ukraine. I needed to talk about the the sort of potential for mass displacement and, and what to think about. This one was an interesting one. because So the earthquake, the, the 7.8 earthquake in Turkey happened on a Sunday morning. And all Sunday and all Monday I was thinking, am I going to write something? I, I was reading a ton of news reports on it. And again, it was, I, there were a couple angles that I wasn't seeing. And I said, okay. I sat down Monday night and I said, okay, I, I guess I need to write something. And what I was seeing was based on some lived experience that I had not really talked about before. And the reason it's personal is because I grew up in Turkey. Yeah. And in 1999, there were two very bad, similarly bad earthquakes that That's happened right. I'd forgotten about that. in the Istanbul region. And again, it's 1999 and I'm going to exactly date myself here but i was a senior in high school and my national honor society got together and we launched what essentially i didn't have these words at that time what was essentially a humanitarian assistance small program where we collected a bunch of goods and resources and money and other things and we hired a bus and drove to this little village that had been near the epicenter of the first earthquake but that hadn't been reached by anybody yet. Ah, And I ended up touring some of the camps and and other uh, more urban environments uh, as a result. And and why that relates to this latest Turkey earthquake is because what I saw back then was very much what I was seeing out of the pictures coming out of southeastern Turkey, a couple months ago, I was seeing one building that looked perfectly fine, and then the next building over completely collapsed. A building standards issue. Building standards, construction standards, and not just the contractors themselves cutting corners, but the lack of enforcement of construction standards. The 1999 earthquake resulted in a bunch of construction standards being instituted passed into law, what have you in Turkey and and what I saw was a lack of enforcement and 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 building standards there was also another so I wasn't seeing that in the initial coverage that that has since become part of thought not because of me but because I think other people got wise to this why is there one building up and one building down but I wasn't seeing that at first and and um, so I, I put that out there there was another angle about Geopolitics, essentially, which I always hesitate to write about when people are still beneath rubble and and suffering. I think it's a it's just a fine from a humanitarian balance. standpoint. Yeah, it's you know the the focus should have been, and I and I think largely was for that first two week window was really on we just got to save people. Yeah. Forget all this geopolitics stuff. Like we just got to get people out of the rubble. We got to save people. But there was. Um, I decided to to include an angle anyways because this is an election year in Turkey and they're one of the things that I hadn't seen talked about, uh, and, and still haven't seen a, a ton of talk about it is, you know, tragedies like this do present moments where you can reset geopolitical re- relationships. Mm-hmm. And that happened in 1999, uh, Greece had warships that were in very near to Turkish waters back in 1999, and then immediately you had Greeks uh, sending earthquake relief teams, search and rescue rescue teams, and, and there was a thawing in relations. And so oh, that's great. I, I was sort of wondering whether something like that was possible. Yeah,
0: you might be concerned there would be an exploitation of the situation.
1: Could be. Could be. I, I think there's there's potential for exploitation. There's also just a moment where you realize that some of your differences are petty. Yeah. And there's there's more important things keeping people alive. Oh, that's good. That's a
0: good thought. You know, one last thing on Turkey. Any thoughts on Erdogan's decision to green light Finland getting into NATO?
1: I am very happy to see that that Finland uh, has joined and and I haven't followed it closely what what the disagreements were and what the ultimate resolution was, but the most important thing is uh, Vladimir Putin, a big part of why he launched this assault and invasion of of Ukraine was to stop or or limit the expansion of of NATO East, And, and the exact opposite has happened. NATO has now doubled the size of its border with Russia.
0: Circling back to your specialties, and then I said I wanted to come back to touch on this point, you list disruptive technologies. Mm-hmm. First of all, define that for us and your interest
1: in it. So this is a fun part of what I get to, to think about, and there's quite a few people who think about um, some variation of technologies and their impact on society and, and national security uh, at CSIS. My angle... So first of all, I care about this because I'm a nerd. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: And I've always been a technology nerd. Uh, I I almost studied computer science and math and other things. And I thought I was going to be a coder. And then I realized I wasn't that good at it. (laughs) So, um, But I've always been really curious about technology's role. and, And I'm old enough to remember the promise of the internet you know, and it was going to revolutionize everything, and it did, partially for good, and, and I think uh, it, it more and more in not-so-good ways. And I think that's where the disruptive technologies angle comes in. You know, I, I look at reasons why societies are having challenges. This idea of fragility is really, to me, about the, the relationship that citizens have with their institutions, with their governments, with, you know, do they feel a part of society? And even before technology, this was an issue. You have autocrats and authoritarians that are limiting the rights of people, et cetera. What technology has done is it's given new tools to those people. And so I've written about another wonky term, digital authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. uh, which is... You know, really the definition to me of disruptive technologies is when leaders with authoritarian tendencies use technologies to limit the rights of their citizens, to yeah. get what they want, to consolidate power. And and I think that's... Um, you
0: see that in Southeast Asia.
1: You see it all over. And I think one of the... Again, I'm always looking for an angle. And my angle on this is we are reasonably good at, at cybersecurity i was at the dc united game last saturday and every other advertisement is for cybersecurity oh tell me about it you walk through reagan airport and that's your half of your it's all cybersecurity yeah we do and and we invest as a government we the the us government invests pretty heavily in cybersecurity and 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 there's a new effort at the white house and at the state department what we don't do particularly well is getting ahead of the problem. Cybersecurity is about: is your wall good enough? Can you react? Well, prevention is a much harder nut to crack. It's a much harder story to tell, and the, and ultimately, that's why I'm interested in it.
0: Yeah, boy, I think you could make a career out of that topic alone right now. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> um. Let's take a step back, talk about how you got here, your career. You mentioned growing up in Turkey, but you also had a lot of international experiences, Iraq only being one of them, right? Yeah. Did you move to the States right out of high school?
1: I did. I, I um, went to an American school in, in Turkey, a DOD school. Um, shout out to all the Dodds kids out there. Um and I, I went to the University of Texas as an undergrad, studied business and was really lost for several years because I didn't know what I wanted to do like I feel like a lot of yeah. sort of younger folks I get that are and, and I almost on a whim or an afterthought applied to graduate school because I, I wasn't really getting offers out of undergrad that were all that compelling I I rent from them, but I didn't want to work for Enterprise Rent a Car and yeah, got it. You know really some good. of the the other things that international business majors like me were yeah. <laughs> were getting offered.
0: Well, that um, that was going to be my next question: is you you went from a business admin or even international business, I think, to public
1: affairs. For your yeah, and 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 quite frankly, I wasn't a great student in in undergrad. Um, I was working three jobs. I was trying to pay for college, and and I I didn't love business i i I really have come to admire the role of the private sector admire is maybe not the right word appreciate the the role of the private sector and the issues that i care about but again just sort of working for profit maximization was not the driving force i i remember bill sitting in ba 101 yeah sure
0: and I took that course. I was business. When I'm I sure you
1: were, and and the professor said, on the I, I remember this distinctly. On the first day of class, he said, "How many of you want to raise money?" And it was like me and the kid with dreads didn't raise our hands. And and it's not that I don't care about money. Of course I do. I've got two kids, and I want to provide for them, et cetera. But that wasn't my driving. That wasn't my primary motivating factor. And. So it wasn't until that I got to the LBJ school as a graduate student right out of undergrad, which I don't necessarily recommend, although I can talk about that if, you, if you're interested. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until then that I really found my tribe, that I really found the, the type of nerd that I was. <laughs> uh, and, and this policy stuff really started to resonate with yeah. me. Um, and, and so that's... Did it bring out that 1999 turkey experience? It did. It it really did. And I didn't quite realize that until later. Um, I thought I wanted to be uh, in the Foreign Service for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when when some kids, uh, you know, if you ask my five-year-old what she wants to be when she grows up, it's probably a princess or a fairy or something like that. And fireman, astronaut, those types of things. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, for me, it was
1: being an astronaut or a professional baseball player. Right. For me, it's always been an ambassador. Oh, because you are a nerd. I am such a nerd. <laughs> and it's because, you know, my father's Turkish, my mother's American. I, I grew up sort of bicultural in, in both of those places, and, and I just had and continue to have such utmost respect for, for diplomats and the work that they do. And, and I realized... In graduate school, I did an internship at the U.S. Embassy in, in Paraguay. Okay. And I realized in graduate school that I still did want to be an ambassador, but maybe there was a different way. Maybe there was a more entrepreneurial way. You know, I, I remember being at the embassy and loving my experience at the embassy, and I'm still friends with the economic and commercial section officer that has now gone on to do bigger and better things. But I remember being fascinated by the USAID guy sure. down the hall. And I was like, wait, this is the mid-2000s. I was like, wait, there's a, you, can, you can have a job doing this? And, and again, that's where that 1999 earthquake brain started kicking in. And, and so that's, I think, what led me to, once I had turned in my uh, professional report at, at LBJ, just hop in my Jetta and, and make my way up to D.C., Straight from graduate. Straight from graduate school, didn't have a job, just trying to make it happen.
0: Yeah, well, that's an age-old story. I sold a <laughs> car to pay the rent. If you had a groceries. nickel for every time you heard that, right? Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Well, I was right there, my friend. Uh, you did land eventually into something, and let's talk about your first job in town, though.
1: Yeah, I had lots of first jobs because I was a temp. Um, I, I realized, so I, I came to DC in a Volkswagen Jetta that I promptly sold to a friend of mine so that I had a couple months rent money. And I realized very quickly that I was not going to get the job. And yet I had to pay rent. And again, if you had a nickel for every time you heard this. And so I signed up with this temp agency and I ended up being a, a receptionist at a, law firm, a <coughs> lobby shop. And I ended up working for the U.S. Global Leadership uh, Coalition, which is a, uh, U.S.GLC is still a fabulous organization that, that exists today. I placed political ads uh, during a midterm cycle. I sat in front of a computer and entered numbers into a spreadsheet. Um, yeah, just totally paying my dues. And, and I, I realized it was during that U.S.GLC stint I helped plan their end-of-the-year gala one year. And I was like, wait, these organizations sound fascinating. And this is actually what that USAID guy in Asunción, Paraguay, was talking to me about. He was talking to me about the contractors, the NGOs, yeah. Yeah. the Save the Children's, the you know Oxfam's. And they were all members of this USGLC. And so I started connecting dots. And I started applying to... Everyone that I, you know, I read their mission statement, and I'd say, okay, I can, I can buy into that, and, you know, okay, is there anything I'm reasonably qualified for? Bam, submit, submit sure. a, and it, like most people, I submitted 75, 80 cover letters, and oh, yeah. got one, one uh, offer to, to backstop uh, an Iraq program, a USAID funded uh, Iraq-based program. I How said, long
0: well, did that take to get it?
1: it took about a year. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's I, not uncommon either. Which is not I know what your young listeners want to hear, but I, I think I I just sort of knew in my heart of hearts that it was the right direction for me and and ultimately I think it was right. That's great.
0: Was that job would Save the Children, or was that one? No, that
1: was with uh, uh, what I like to call the artist, formerly known as CHF International. They they were used to be known as CHF, and now they're known as Global Communities. Global Communities, sure. Great, great organization based in Silver Spring, Maryland.
0: Yeah. Did you go overseas with them?
1: So I started working for them in their D.C. office, and I realized pretty quickly that all the fun was not in D.C. <laughs> uh, or Silver Spring. And... Um, there was a, it was a big USA idea. This was sort of the boom years of all these NGOs and contractors. There was a ton of money going to, yeah. to do development and aid work in, in Iraq post-invasion. Uh, post and so this, this NGO was part of that. And, and, you know, I said, look, we're doing this, I don't know what the number was, $80, 90000000 million project or whatever it was. And, you know, we don't really have that robust of a monitoring and evaluation function. I felt like we were meeting the bare minimum, but, it, but this, was a, this was and continues to be a quality organization. I said, look, we should probably have someone out there doing this monitoring and evaluation independent. And, oh, by the way, here's my resume. Mm-hmm. So as a 25-year-old, I moved to Iraq. Good for you. That's phenomenal. How long were you there? I was there about 18 months, um, and my, my then-girlfriend, now-wife, uh, that I met in D.C., <laughs> Um, she had, in the meantime while I was in Iraq, she had moved to South Sudan, and uh, so I um, after about 18 months in Iraq, I was like, that's enough. I'm I'm good, Um, and I'm going to be with my girlfriend in, in East Africa, and they were, the organization was kind enough to find a role for me there, and so I was ended up being there, staying with the same organization and being their country director in South Sudan, and Traveling around the the region a little bit. So, what brought you back to DC? Um, well, the the journey back to DC was an indirect one. We ultimately, my wife and I left the field because she got into graduate school. Oh, um She hadn't done graduate school. She's also a McCombs University of Texas grad, um, and she got into A a little public policy school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and so we decided to move back to the United States. And I ended up working at the Kennedy School myself for a bit. And that was an adjunct, or were you? No, so that I was I was supporting the research of of an economist um, who was trying to convince me to get a PhD in economics, and I was not interested in 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 that. Um, I I didn't. Feel like I was that kind of smart, um, and and you know for other reasons was much more interested in this policy stuff, and so that was my transition into to research. Um, ultimately, coming down to D.C. though was um, post me taking a diversion into politics.
0: Talk about that a bit, because I did see that on the resume.
1: So I have this theory of. Being in in Washington, and and sort of there are uh, really key parts of of Washington that if you want to be, um, if you want to have impact in this town, there's a few things that you need. Uh, one of them, I think, is strong educational experience, and mm-hmm. and yep. you know, LBJ School and, and McCombs these were great. Working at the Kennedy School didn't hurt. Um, so there's that sort of educational rung or leg of the of the three-legged stool. Then it's street cred. Yeah. Have you okay? You're interested in foreign policy. Have you worked in the places that that matter to the United States? You know, okay. You want to work in foreign policy in D.C. You know, back in the 2000s, it was Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, South Sudan. These were these were really Important places, I'd argue, still important places, but sure. But in the moment, in the moment, very, very important places. And then the third was was political experience, Um, and I felt like you know I had aligned with one political party for a very long time, but I I hadn't really demonstrated that dedication. And and I remember, so I, I signed up for the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign mainly to knock on doors to be honest with you. Right. Um, I was living in Massachusetts, and the New Hampshire primary was a quick jaunt away, and oh, so yeah. I signed up as a, as a <laughs> essentially an unpaid intern on the campaign for the summer, took a leave of absence from the Kennedy School. Mm. And within, within about 10 days, I had an offer to stick around on the campaign and be a field organizer, and so I, for the next 500 days, oh, um, bounced around the campaign and and living out of a suitcase. Living out of the suitcase. Um I was in western New Hampshire for, for seven months and so okay. I had an actual apartment there okay. but you know, really bounced around after that quite a bit and was up there again in New Hampshire on election day and ultimately decided uh we were expecting our, our first child then and decided despite the outcome of the twenty sixteen election that we still wanted to come to DC and this is where we wanted to raise our kids.
0: And this is how you got
1: started at C S I S? Yeah, and and so I, I remember thinking coming down, um, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I've got this kid on the way. You know, I need to I I need to do something, you know, I can wallow in grief for a certain period of time, but I, I need to get back on my feet. Yeah. And I remember talking to someone who gave me really great advice. Said, you know, you have some pretty interesting experience, and you've lived overseas, and you've got a master's. And, you know, go work at a think tank. And I said, What's a think tank? Yeah, sure, right. Um, and so he explained it to me, and, and I said, Well, I don't really want to be a research assistant. You know, like I'm in my thirties. You know, he's like, No, 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 go be a fellow at a think tank. I said, Wait, you're they're going to pay me to think and write? That's a thing. Uh, and. And sure enough, I um, started reaching out, and it was actually through an LBJ connection that um, I was connected with um, someone who was on the board of the LBJ in Washington Center who whose husband was working at CSIS. Oh, that's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I figured there was a connection there.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Did you hit the ground running over there, or did you feel like there was a learning curve?
1: There's always a learning curve. Um, I had the benefit of having a... Um, a really welcoming boss at the time who um he, whatever reticence I had in having my own voice for really the first time I published a few things here and there and I've I've liked to write for a really long time but not for a major place like CSIS and right I think he really gave me the the confidence to go and put myself out there and Wrote a couple pieces, and they were well received or at least not poorly received <laughs> and we ended up um, working on there was a major issue at the beginning of the Trump administration where they were they were um, talking about merging uh, the u s agency for International Development into the state Department oh, I remember that um, which I think is a is a is an intellectual exercise that's that's maybe interesting Um, I think at that time it was probably not the right time to be considering this and so we uh, we launched a bipartisan task force uh, of, of people who said look you're interested in efficiency and effectiveness what you're talking about doing might actually do the opposite, and if you're actually interested, here's some other things you should consider. and that I think that that exercise, I was one of the primary authors on that, and that exercise, I think really gave me the confidence to have a to have a voice and and that I you know maybe had something to say.
0: Well, Errol, as you may know, I'd like to ask each of my guests for some piece of advice that they would impart to someone perhaps starting in d c like you did once upon a time or doing a career pivot like you also did once upon a time.
1: What would that be? I talked about that three-legged stool before of, of education and street cred and, and political experience. That that three-legged stool is going to be a four-legged stool for some people. It's going to have different legs. But I would encourage people to think about what those core parts Uh, Of DC are, if if they're interested in DC, what part of DC are you interested in? And the way that I would think about it is what's your North Star? I dislike strongly when people say, what job are you going to have in 10 years? Yeah, right, exactly. It's such a stupid question. But what you can say is, what's your North Star? So if you said that to me, I would say, "I, I care about how the US interacts with the world and vice versa. Well, I care about foreign policy. Okay, that's the 30,000 foot. The 10,000 foot is I care about it in tough places. Great. So that's my North Star. And everything that I'm doing in some way has to contribute to the one of those three legs of the stool, and it's got to be in the direction of that North Star. So people always say, like, You know, I I feel like in college a lot, especially in undergrad, but even in in graduate school, a lot of the advice is like, you know, you need to have a career and things like career paths. Careers are not linear. No. You you ebb and flow, you zig and you zag, and and so I think figuring out what your north star is now, and it may change, but figuring out what your north star is, and then figuring out what legs of those stool are going to get you. To go in that direction, to be able to follow that North Star, and everything am I do, everything that I'm doing professionally, does it contribute in one way or another to one of those three legs? Back when you were
0: at temp, did you feel like your compass was pointing at the North Star?
1: I felt like I I didn't have this idea of the North Star back then. I I knew that I wanted to do something international. But I didn't know what that was. And I have developed it over, over time. And, and so I think like a lot of folks in their sort of <laughs> early twenties was very lost um, and and benefited from, from good mentors like I hope a lot of your listeners have.
0: That's great advice. And you've had a great career. I wish you all the success and wherever that compass takes you towards that North Star. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's always room to fill your drink. Errol, thanks for being here, and thank you all for
1: listening. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. That was fun.